Welcome to the New Freedom Church Podcast. This podcast will help you grow deeper in your faith through weekly 30-minute talks. If you haven't already done so, go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you get each new episode as it's released. Now sit back and relax as God speaks to you through this message. I want to talk about divine healing today. We're going to look at a couple of the ways that miraculous healing was wrought through the hands of Jesus. But, but here's what I want to do. I don't want us to look at these as rigid templates by which healing has to take place, but rather I want them to be instructive examples of how God has worked in the past and how God continues to work in our present and how he will finally wrap all things up in our future. And he works through the healing of our hearts, of our bodies, of our minds, of our emotions. See, healing just isn't a outward manifestation of some physical infirmity that is fixed, although that does encompass healing, but rather it is to make a person whole, complete. Sozo, the word sozo in Greek is, is healing, completion, our salvation wrought in Jesus. Luke 7, we see uh, this scene, and you maybe have heard this scene before, but we see this scene where Jesus is now entering into a town, and he's coming into a town, and he's He's traveling with now a great entourage because news about Jesus' healing had gone out throughout all the regions. Signs and wonders were being manifested in his meetings, and everywhere he would go, something was taking place that was out of the ordinary. Something was taking place that people had never seen before. So Jesus had his disciples, but also there was a great crowd that was following him. And we're going to see here that he enters Capernaum, and there is in this town a request for him to come and heal a very prominent person in the community's servant. And we're going to pick up the text in verse 4. It says this, And when when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying, that the one of whom he should do this for was deserving. This is the centurion's servant. For he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word. Let's repeat that. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent returned to the house, found that the servant, he is well, who had been sick. This miraculous healing had taken place in a very uncharacteristic manner, in a way that they hadn't expected, but Jesus expected, and apparently this centurion expected. And the leaders had asked Jesus for a favor, They had come from this prominent man's entourage in his household, and they said, there's someone who is sick, and he serves a centurion, a a, a prominent man in our community that has done great things for our nation. He's even given us a synagogue to worship at. So this was a generous giver unto the people of God. This was a God-fearing Gentile but he was probably a secular man. He, he probably didn't have a connection, a direct relationship with the God of Israel other than he was just being nice to God's people. He found it in his heart to do good things. And so when Jesus was asked to go and to 
perform a healing or to do a favor, he consented to go. He was fine to go ahead and see what he could do uh, to, to get involved in this matter. And he was very self-aware, the centurion was, in this matter because he really didn't have high expectations on what Jesus was going to personally come and do at his house. He really set the tone that Jesus could operate any way that Jesus wants to operate. And I wonder how many times do we box God in because we put him in these parameters. And we say, God, if you're going to move, you're going to move according to my schedule, according to my plan, according to my ways. And the centurion had none of that in his mind. The scriptures say that God is higher than our ways. God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so God's thoughts are above ours. Now, we know the word says that, but we still go ahead and we put these barriers on God, don't we? We put these parameters and, and we, we have these lists and we have these notions of how God should operate, how, how things should be done in our lives. But the centurion had none of that. He was stripped of all of those kind of high expectations about what Jesus would do. He just simply said, I hear about this healer. Go and see if he'll do a favor here for me as well. And he just had a simple request. And so the centurion had a firm understanding of authority, as it says in the scriptures here, that as Jesus neared his house, he sent out another group of people to say, tell Jesus, don't come here. I am not worthy that he would come under my roof. He was very self-aware. He knew that he was not measuring up to the standards of what the religious day would say that you would need to have in order to have a, a, a rabbi like Jesus come to your roof. And then he goes on a little bit further to explain to us how well-versed he was in authority. He relayed this message to Jesus in his natural realm of his understanding of the, the vocation and calling that he walked in as a, as a military man. He said, listen, I know authority. I tell one, go, and he goes. I tell another one to come and he comes. I tell this one, go and do this. And that's exactly what they do. So militarily, he said, I understand how authority works in the natural realm. And he's making an appeal to Jesus to do something of authority in the spiritual realm. Now watch the, watch the connection here. So when Jesus gets near to the house, he's going to come in. Apparently, it's just like we, we see the, the story of Jesus walking on the water and he would have passed them by, but they called out. Jesus isn't necessarily going to go by the dictates of what we think, but the centurion thought, well, he's going to come right here. He stopped him, and he said, all you need to do is send the word. Just say the word. Yet let your authority be spoken over my servant, and he will be healed. Now, here's what the scripture says, that Jesus marveled. Jesus was amazed. He turns to his disciples, and in somewhat of a, a subtle rebuke, he says, I've not seen this kind of faith in all of my church experiences, in all of my synagogue wanderings, in all of Israel, in all of God's chosen holy people, in all of my travels, I've not seen the level of faith that I see demonstrated in this secular centurion who understands true authority. Now let's break this down a minute. The centurion did not necessarily have a grasp on spiritual authority, but he did understand something of the natural realm. And Jesus is about to demonstrate how that spiritual authority transcends and trumps the natural authorities of the realm in which we operate in, this fleshly realm, this earthly realm. And so Jesus marvels because he sees a man taking his natural, everyday, trained up profession and vocation and applying it to all of his life. Now, we, we do something around here in our direction connection is that we like to 
have people assess what their spiritual talents and their spiritual gifts are. And it's always amazing to me to see that people will, will discover something that spiritually they may be well-suited for, but they've never really launched out to do that. It may be teaching a class, and they say, oh, I don't like to talk in front of people. It may be serving in an area that they've never really noticed that there's even a need there before, but something percolates on the inside of them, and God shows them a need. And when you go and feel, feel a need and you experience that, that healing power of Jesus coming through your hands, it's something exciting about that. You want to do more and more of it. And I love people finding their natural, uh, uh, their, their spiritual uh, uh, giftedness. But here's what I want to apply to this is that our natural giftings can be employed and used in the kingdom of God as well. See, God doesn't have you check all your previous experiences, your, your, your uh, examples of life living, all the things that you've gathered in life to this point when you come, become a Christian. No, he expects us to leverage our natural giftings, our understandings of what we have learned and come to, to do well with our hands, with our minds, with our work, and to apply it in the, the service of our king. And then from there, he will give us additional spiritual callings and giftings that we can apply also in kingdom use. And the centurion rightly used his natural vocation to make a spiritual conclusion, though he didn't realize it at the moment, Jesus was about to demonstrate his power, spiritual power, over the natural realm. And each and every one of us are going to encounter things in the natural that are bigger than what we can tackle on our own. This week, you will come up against something or someone or a problem or a circumstance that on your own, it would be very difficult, if not impossible for you to do. But through prayer, through relying on the Lord, you can have another worldly power come. You can have some other kind of supernatural power that will come by the power of the Holy Ghost equipping you and quickening you and doing in you and through you what you cannot do on your own. That is the power of the resurrected Jesus on the inside of believers. And Jesus marveled and said, I've not seen this great faith in all of Israel. Many times, I believe that God is not impressed with the complexity of our deep devotion near as much as he is impressed and moved with the simplicity of simply taking God at his word. Amen. And that's what the centurion did, said, just send the word only, just authorize my servant to be healed by you saying it and it will be done. Amen. Notice Jesus never went to the house. He never went in. He got close, but he never went in. Jesus never spit in the mud in this case. Jesus never anointed this man with oil. Jesus never lifted him up by the hand. Jesus never actually prayed and laid hands on this man. He simply sent the word. He simply said, go your way, your servant's healed. And when the, the entourage got back to the house, what'd they find? Just exactly like Jesus said, it will be done just like he said, according to thy word, Lord. What Mary say? We're, coming up, we're about, I think I read it yesterday, we're 11 Saturdays away from Christmas. You're welcome. But Mary receives this word from the Lord that she will be with child, and how would that be that she was a virgin? Pastor, do you still believe in that old wives tale, that old stuff, that, that virgin birth? It's in the book. I believe the book. Amen. And here's what Mary replied. Be it unto me 
according to thy word. It was the word that she received. It was the authority upon her life that she received and brooded upon and got connected with the word of God to her. And she harbored these things in her heart. She, she rested upon them and she allowed and, and authorized God to do in her life what he said he wanted to do. Psalm 107 says this. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. You ever cried out to God in time of trouble? That's a pretty good time to cry out to God. You can worship him in the good times, but it's okay to cry out to him in the time of trouble. And here's what it says. And he saved them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from all of their destructions. Where did Jesus get this notion of just simply speaking something and it be done without him actually going and fixing it with his hands. See, we want to get our hands dirty, don't we? We want, to, we want to get in and start fixing all the problems. We hear about somebody's problem and we spring into action. We say, well, let me just get involved and start fixing this. And many times what happens is we actually get in the way of God when we stand in our own natural authority, when we stand in our own natural ability to try to fix something that we were never called to fix in the natural when really what we've been called to do is to simply stand in the spiritual. And having done all to stand, we stand upon the word of God. Amen. The B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God. Amen. The Bible, Amen. God's eternal word. It is the oak of God entwining its roots around the rock of ages against such that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church, against his word, against the authority that God has given to you and me and it's in our mouths. More on that last week. You can go back and watch. But in the text, we see the healing Jesus offering to us a cooperation with our words. Now, we get to Luke chapter 7, and this is a whole new day. This is something different that is taking place. And each day in the ministry of Jesus is building upon the previous day. And we get now to Luke chapter 7, and I want to read this. It says, now it happened the day after that he went into the city called Nain and many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. You notice that there's not only Jesus traveling companions, but now there's a, a, a bigger entourage, a large crowd is now traveling. I mean, wouldn't you? I mean, this, this is the greatest, if you want to call it show on earth, this is the greatest thing that's happened. They've never seen anything like this. They, they left their homes, they left their livelihoods, and they said, you know what, we're just going to keep following this, this Jesus guy because this looks pretty interesting. We're seeing some things happen here we've never seen happen before. So Jesus and his crowd and his disciples get into the city called Nain. And when they came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out. The only son of his mother and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the city was with them. So one large crowd is combining with another large crowd, and we're about to see a critical mass. We're about to see something happen. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came out and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. This is only one of three occasions in the ministry of Jesus that we see a dead person raised. 
And it is serving for us as a precursor of his own resurrection that is soon to take place. But we see the widow's son raised. We see Jairus' daughter raised. And then Jesus' own dear friend Lazarus raised from the dead. Physically, people who were dead being raised to life again, only one of three times. And all of us here today, each one of us have either been in or we are going to experience at some point this same kind of funeral procession, whether it be for a loved one, but ultimately it will be for us. One day, this may be us. Physically, but for some, this is us spiritually, right now. The word used here is coffin. It's really an open stretcher. And so if you can set the scene in your mind for a moment, Jesus having this great crowd following him with great expectations, wonderful things happening, now they encounter this city called Nain. And at the gate of Nain, they see something that for most of us we dread. We don't like funerals. I don't care how many funerals you've been to, doesn't matter how many funerals I've officiated, there is something that is just a little bit foreboding about a funeral. I mean, very seldom are they like a joyous occasion. And when he arrives at Nain, the word Nain means beautiful. So this is a beautiful city. Jesus and his entourage encounter anything but beautiful. I mean, there's nothing beautiful about a funeral that they're seeing this happen. Because this large crowd is following this coffin and this procession and there is weeping, there is crying, there is just such a sullen, heavy heart that is taking place here. Now, we can glean a few things from the text. We know that the main character here is actually not Jesus. It's actually not even the boy who had died. The main character, if you, if you read the text, the main character is the mother. It says that this is her only son, and she is a widow. Now, in that day, women could not own property. They could not have status in society like men could. In a patriarchal society, this, this woman was now at the end of her natural existence, regardless if she lived another 50 years, her life was going to be one of begging, of misery, and of low status. Because she had no husband, and she had now no son, and therefore no one to protect her. As we look at this woman, the main character of this little portion of scripture, we can look at her in this season and we can see this snapshot of this season of her life where all that she is feeling now is dread. All that she has on her shoulders now is fear. It is grief, it is heaviness, it is loss, it is pain. We don't see anything about her being physically in pain, but emotionally, internally, spiritually, mentally, this woman was in pain. In the first century, they had this notion in, in Jewish philosophy, which says, don't grieve, it does no good. That, that was their notion. Don't grieve, it doesn't do any good. Now, they, they really weren't basing that on the Psalms because the Psalms is full of grief. It's full of pouring out our complaint and our heart to God. But, but a secular notion in the first century was, was kind of a tough mantra of don't grieve, it doesn't matter, it doesn't do any good. Now, Jesus doesn't come to this woman and say don't grieve. But he does say something interesting. And at first blush, it can look as though Jesus is just a little bit insensitive. He says to this woman, don't cry. 
Now that's different than don't grieve. The scriptures tell us Jesus was moved with compassion when he witnessed this funeral procession. And looking at the woman, he says, don't cry. He ignored the crowd that was following him, clamoring for all of his greatness. He ignored the crowd that was following and weeping and and, and walking in the funeral procession. He zeroes right in on the person who was hurting the most in the moment, and that was the widowed woman who lost her son. He looks at that woman. He finds her in the depths of her despair, and he says, woman, don't cry. And the reason that Jesus says don't cry is because he already knew what he was about to do was to change the entire circumstances of the environment, to change her life forever. And Jesus doesn't seem nearly as moved by the death of this boy as he does at the grief of this mother. Now, the respectable thing to have done in this case would have been simply to bow your head, let the funeral pass, and keep marching. But Jesus is a little countercultural, if you haven't noticed. Jesus doesn't mind to upset the norms of the day, if you haven't noticed. Jesus is perfectly content to mess up everybody's theology. And he goes right up to this open coffin, a rabbi, a holy man, One that if he gets close to a dead person will be defiled just by the simple fact that he is supposed to be in the temple and he is supposed to be worshiping and he's supposed to be offering sacrifices. He is a man that is representative between God and people. And so therefore, anything that is dead is an abomination and he cannot get close to that. Jesus breaks all norms. He goes right up to that coffin and he touches the stake of the coffin. He touches it and he commands again. He says to the boy, get up. And lo and behold, the boy gets up He starts talking, and notice what Jesus does is that he gives the boy back to the mother. Now, this is interesting. He gives this boy back to the one who was grieving and losing the most because what he was doing here was he was restoring this boy to his original purpose. His purpose was to now, for the rest of his life, take care of and maintain an existence for his mother. And Jesus gives him back to his original purpose. There's some people today in your life, and you may be in this place yourself, where physically you're alive, but spiritually there are some things that need to be brought alive. There are some things that have seemed to lose their purpose. There are some things in our lives that have grown a little bit wayward of the purpose by which we understood it originally. We can look at our life and we can feel like we're not as far as we would like to have been at this point in our life. We can look at our lives and we can assess ourselves and compare against other people and think, God just isn't seeming to work in my life like he's working in other people's lives. I used to have this dream and now I'm not feeling the same passion for this dream. I don't feel like I have a purpose. I'm wayward, I'm I'm aimless. And Jesus looks right at this woman who is in need the most He speaks a word of encouragement to her. Don't cry, not being insensitive, but he speaks to her despair and gives her her purpose back. Now, what they thought was going to happen in the natural was that there was going to be a burial. And Jesus upset the plans. He changed the entire narrative and he did something that they really didn't expect is he rose to life again, this boy who had been dead. 
And this is actually what Jesus had come to do spiritually for everyone. He raises the spiritually dead to life again. We call it being born again. Being born from heaven, being born from above. That if you confess your sins, you believe on the Lord Jesus, that if you will come into a humble relationship of admission that I have done wrong, I have sinned, it's not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of forgiveness. When we get real and we get honest with God, then we get this miraculous change on the inside. It's called being born again. It is confessing our sin, repenting, which means to turn the other direction, to change our mind. The scriptures tell us this, it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Now, I know a lot of churches like to sanitize that word. They, they like to lower the standard. They don't want to talk words like repentance and sin and hell and degradation. They don't want to talk about things like eternal consequences for our actions. They want to kind of sanitize and set that aside so that we can have all the flowery talk about God's blessing and God's goodness and God's grace. And those things are wonderful and those things are important. But there are two sides to this coin of life. And there is a day coming when we will give account before God for the deeds done in our life. And if you're outside of the covenant of God, then you're going to have to stand on your own without an advocate. But the good news is this, the gospel message is this, Jesus is our advocate, he is our go-between. The middle wall of separation has been torn and we now have access to the Father. We can come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and help in our time of need. And it's not because of our goodness. It's not because of our righteous works for your righteousness is nothing but filthy rags in the sight of God. But it's all because of your heart condition. Amen. It's all because at some time or another, you said, Lord, I repent. Lord, I receive. Lord, I believe. It's simple. ABC, you accept the free gift of God, admitting that you're a sinner. Be you believe in what God has said that his son came to do and see you confess with your mouth and you commit your heart to God. The ABCs of salvation, it's that easy. But preacher, where's the prayer? What, what about the, the three little things that I have to check off and sign? You can do all that, that's fine, I don't care, you can do that. It's not Bible. Because when I, when I, 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 I'll tell you this, when I gave my life to Jesus, when I walked that altar on that Sunday night at that little church in Cincinnati, when I walked that altar, I don't even really remember walking. I just remember being so under heavy conviction that my life was not right before God. And if I were to die that day, I don't know where I would spend eternity. And it, it struck fear into my heart. So much so that when the altar call was given, I just, I rose and I walked that altar and I knelt down and I simply was a broken person before God. At 15 years old, I recognized that I was in need of something I could not do for myself. I had been pretty good up to that point of always trying to figure out, being crafty and sly and, and always getting something around for myself. But I realized I was helpless and undone without God or his son. And now I needed a savior. And this was my opportunity. This was my chance. I could enter into the gate. I could make my way straight to the throne of God. And you can too. You're hearing this today. You're listening to this on podcast. You're listening to this later. You too can have this opportunity to open up your life and your heart to say yes to Jesus, to receive him as savior. That means 
you're not punished anymore for the things you've done, but then to make him Lord. Now that's altogether different because when you make Jesus savior, you've got off the hook. But when you make him Lord, you've now committed your life as a bond servant. A bond servant willingly serves their master. Not out of force, not a coercion, but because they desire to. And when you become a follower of Jesus, what you are saying is making Jesus my savior is not enough. I want him to be my Lord. And I'll follow you as you show me how. All the days of my life, I'm not gonna do it all right. I'm gonna mess up. I'll never forget Sister Bernice Gosney, who was a longtime Bible school teacher. Many of you don't know her, Grandma Schutz knows her. She was teaching a, a, a Bible class one, one day and she said, children. She'd always a, a, a announce her class, she would address them as children. And she could do that because when you're well in your 80s, just about anybody could be a child. She said, children, there's been many a times I've had to walk down that aisle and I've had to kneel my knee at the altar since the time that I said yes to Jesus. Oh, that was good news to me. Because <laughs> I knew there were many times that I also had to confess and to bring something before God and to say to him, I need you, Lord. I need your help today. I need you to intervene in my life. He says, Jesus touched the open coffin and those who carried him stood still, and he said, the young man, arise. And I wonder how many today need to hear the words of Jesus that you can rise. You can get up from the dead situation that has plagued you. You can get up and you can walk again. You can get up and you can try again. Regardless of what life has thrown at you, what things have knocked you down, you can get up today. So I have a question for you. Who was this miracle for? Was it for the dead boy? Was it for the mother? How about the townspeople? What about the crowd following Jesus? Who was this miracle for? Was it for me? Was it for you? Yes. It was recorded. It was witnessed by them. It was a punctuation point, a precursor to show them that natural death has no authority over the spiritual power in the name of Jesus. And today, I wanna ask, with heads bowed and no one looking around, between you and God, are there some things in your life that need to hear the name of Jesus? Do you know this name, this savior, this person, this compassionate healer, Jesus. If you don't, today is your day. And I say it with a smile on my face and joy in my heart that today is the day of salvation, that tomorrow is offered to no one. So you might as well just determine today to make things right between you and God. Maybe you say, pastor, I've already done that. How about some things in your life that need to be have the breath of God breathe afresh and anew in the name of Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, wonderful Jesus. There's no other name given among heaven or on earth whereby we should be saved.
but at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's all pray together. Father, we thank you for sending us this precious gift, this eternal life gift in the form of your son. We receive the resurrection power of Jesus into our own lives. Whether it's the first time that we say the name of Jesus in saving faith, or we've said it many times and we're just now renewing our relationship with you afresh. Today, God, we want to come as worshipers before your throne to say the name of Jesus, to declare the name of Jesus, to worship around the throne with God's people because of the gift of Jesus. All God's people said, amen.